Hello there and welcome to the latest episode of IC Interviews. My name is Alex Newman, a writer at the Investors Chronicle and today I am joined by Peter Tugard, Chief Investment Officer at Retirement Solutions Provider Embark Group. We're going to talk about several topics this week, um, particularly on a now regular theme in the magazine, which is ESG investing. But first, we're speaking at the end of August 2020. And uh, I'd just like to start by, by getting your, your take, Peter, on, on how you see asset markets at the moment and maybe what you'd start with, what are your, some of your chief concerns as an investor and, and, and some of your causes for optimism, if there are any out there? <laughs> the immortal. Um, okay, so a frame it is uh, the start of the year. We weren't particularly bullish. We thought 19, um, we were you know, fairly confident about 19, but 19, 2019, you'd um, spent getting the S&P up 30% with no um, consummate rise in earnings. So we were a little cautious. Um, we hadn't anticipated COVID. No one had, clearly. Um, our view um, at that point uh, when COVID struck was you're in a vacuum, unprecedented, never known, never seen, biggest fall in risk assets in terms of timeline, as in the speed of it, um, quite quite, quite breathtaking. Truth of the matter is very few fund managers that we talk to could take much action. You're talking less than 20 days to do most of the damage in practical terms. Um, and it's the old line we used before. If you're talking about equities, if you're exposed to quality and and, 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 and tech, you were fine. If you're exposed to value and the other ends of cyclicality, you were in trouble. And actually, if you look at how we saw the markets behave from both the downturn and the recovery, um, pretty much if you were still in that quality tech place, you were fine. And if you were in the value chain looking at you know your, your classic cyclical stocks, your financials, you were still struggling. Um, and as we stand here today, that hasn't changed. In fact, it's accelerated because apparently the only stocks you need to own in the world are five American fang stocks and everything else is in its wake. So I think that's really interesting. So our observation is it's become much narrower focused on the uh, perception of the beneficiaries of, of this disruption, trends that were in place clearly already, the move to internet shopping, um, the move to home delivery. Um, those things were set fair. It's been exaggerated. And I think it's fair to say in many cases, uh, more than amply priced into certain parts of the market. Look at the rest of the world to see that hasn't been so, so much enthusiasm. Uh, I sit here today, I've been investing for 27 years. The FTSE is still a thousand points lower than it was in 2000. Um, it, <laughs> I can use other proxies for equivalence, but it's only really been the US and particularly one part of the United States, I think we all know, um, that's been the beneficiary of what is an unprecedented financial splurge. Um, this makes the GFC liquidity provided by central banks look like a child's play. Um, this is a far bigger, far stronger. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just pointing out the scale of it. Um, and therefore, it's had a very positive impact on, on risk assets. Its primary role is to bridge the gap between the revenue that's missing because you've shut the global economy down and the reemergence of those revenues as and when we unlock. So as we stand today, uh, U.S. passed the previous peak. We thought it was a little crazy um, as we walked into this year at 3,300 the S&P. Don't think it's changed. Still think it's a little bit loopy in truth. You can't justify the valuations. Rest of the world, no, not so bad. Relative comfort with other parts of the world in terms of equity space. Um, in terms of sovereign bonds, how can you justify a yield of less than um, one? You justify it because we might be Japan. Um, gold, why gold or gold? Because you don't know if um, real yields are going to stay uh, low and fall further, as in real yields will continue to be negative, um, i.e. your inflation rate and the money you clip off um, cash stroke bonds uh, continues to widen. That's the play for gold. Um, and so, and um, credit, because quite frankly, the spread in credit is not that 
unattractive in spread terms. The bit you get for owning a corporate over a government is reasonably compelling. Um, and again, the high yield spread, the spread to the extra interest you get from owning the high yield over the, the gilt slash the U.S. Treasury. It's also compelling. The nominal number is not that compelling. The yield is not that impressive. But in historic terms, it is the cheapest part of the market of risk assets. The spread is reasonably OK. So I can argue that you should basically be incredibly diversified. It should include sovereign bonds. It should include some equities. It definitely includes some corporate credit. It should also include some gold. And it definitely should include some inflation bonds in case they manage to goose the inflation um, higher, as appears to be every central banker's dream. So yeah. diversification, yeah. absolutely front and center, never been more relevant. And a part of your portfolio should be losing you money in the next 12 months because nobody knows what comes in the next 12 months. In sure. Terms. So, uh, I mean, I just just to completely go against what you just said there and to discriminate within the asset classes, if, if I may. I mean, when we spoke uh, last spoke a couple of months ago, you suggested yep. that I, I suppose for investors on, on the hunt for returns, equities still remain the game in town. Is, is, that, is well, that still your well, view? Of we... Well, they were cheaper two months ago. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't wrong, was I? They went up a lot. Um, so if you, <laughs> if you ask me that question today, would I have anticipated two, a couple of months ago the recovery of the S&P past the previous highs? No. But I never would have imagined that the liquidity gushes would have been quite so um, extreme. If you look at what um, a professional investor, whatever that means, by the way, discuss, um, if there's an assessment of two things as a professional investor, you try and estimate the economic landscape and you can look at the valuation of the asset that you're buying. The latter is probably the key differentiator here. Um, there is no actual precedent for there's lots of liquidity. Everyone wants to trade Tesla. Everyone wants to trade Netflix. Just keep going and keep passing the piece of paper around. You can't rationalize it. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely logical to keep buying it, but people do. That is not investing. That is simply gambling. If you're asking people who look at the blueprint of what you should do, the dividend yield off the FTSE is four and a bit, four and a half now, I think. Um, the companies are relatively stable. They're not particularly um, highly geared. Um, that's a reasonably attractive return. Um, the capital, who knows? We can talk about how COVID affects the global economy in the next 12 months, how Brexit affects the UK economy in the next 12 months. But the dividend... It's been cut, but as you know, they're not cut. They're actually largely delays, and some of them are coming back. Um, so there is one point of call. But the spread is interesting. And when we spoke last time, the Federal Reserve had not promised to backstop the entire corporate bond market in the United States. But it pretty much has. So if you actually look at what that means, it means that corporate spreads, uh, credit spreads, credit bonds, the spread has come in. That's been a good place to invest. I continue to think since it's backstopped, as everything else is currently by central bankers, you can make a very bullish case for, for them as well. So, yes, equities were, but we were looking at a world in which we have could not possibly have estimated that the Federal Reserve would come along and say, actually, we're going to basically own Hertz. We're yeah. going to own high yield. We're going to own any number of corporate bonds and keep buying them or the threat of buying them, which are perhaps is as relevant as buying them physically. So everything is backstops. You're working against the backdrop that most fundamental investors do not understand for one simple reason. The valuation criteria we typically use are cancelled out when there is a buyer of last resort. And there is now a buyer of last resort in high yield, in credit, in sovereign bond. Um, the only thing left is equity. But effectively, if you think about it from that point of view, if everything else is remaining the same, flow is into equities. And that is the case. There has been new flow into equities, but very specific parts of the market. Yeah. It's not a broad recovery. It's reflecting reality and it's focused on the disruptors. The question is, are those disruptors getting expensive? The answer is, yes, they are. 
You can't predict the next 12 months, the next six months. You have to stay diversified. And I can argue in favor of all five of the things I described earlier as why you need to own them. And don't be embarrassed if one or two of them aren't working. That's the world we're in. You can't take a one-dimensional bet here. So to summarize what you just said there, we've got this bid at the bottom of the market, and then we've got this hyper bid at the top of the market in terms of equities. Just to wrap this point up, I mean, you touched on it before in terms of the debate of, of between value and, and growth. Yep. Should we should we view the types of businesses that have been leading the charge with, in growth, you know, as you, as you characterise them disruptors, as having sort of redefined this whole investing debate? Or is that just another species of saying this time it's different? And really, you know, this is dot com boom 2.0 with the, the caveat that these businesses do generate quite considerable op- operating profits. Uh- and that's the difference. They generate enormous, strong free cash flow. Um, I think it isn't dot-com uh, in one sense in that Cisco was priced at um, uh, basically infinite earnings in 2000 um, growth. Uh, that, that isn't the case here. Um, I, I think the problem you've got is the metric of the growth potential of the companies as of today. If Facebook and Google own 64% of the digital marketing market in the US, which they do, by the way, how can Facebook keep growing at 40% a year to justify its current valuation? The answer is it can't. So there's some natural limits to what is going on in some of those fang stocks. That's your issue. So the sensible trade, the, the cheaper trade intellectually is to go for the value trade and to say the world will normalize by hook or by crook. Um, and the normalization post-COVID will represent an opportunity to buy your airlines, your hotels, perhaps your banks, if we move away from the idea that interest rates can never go up again, though Jerome Powell last night implied that isn't the case. So the, the, the court, more cautious trade is rest of the world and the value trade against um, what is perceived to be the disrupting trade. Because let me answer it the other way. Why can't Walmart compete with Amazon head on given its scale? Why can't Walt Disney take on Amazon point blank and Netflix in, 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 in the um, digital um, TV game? Well, it can and it is. And it's doing quite well out of it, actually. Thank you very much. So it's not a simple one dimensional. Actually, Netflix wins. Amazon wins. It's not as simple as that. So, no, I think they're being priced as though they win eternally. So if you are the kind of investor that likes to take the medium-term gamble, uh, you start looking at – you do stick with some of the micro-cap stories. You do stick with some of the small company funds. You do stick with the world will come back to normal. That is definitely the cheaper part of the market, no question at all. So if you find find comfort in cheaper valuations, anything except basically U.S. tech and the growth stocks that represent those globally – is the place to go and, I'll use the word, hide. Um, put simply, no one owns them. When this market does crack, and crack it will, um, you won't be the one holding the, um, the thing halving. And I think Tesla could more than halve. Why couldn't it? It's, it's, it's complete nonsense that people are pricing already. Everyone knows it's nonsense. Yes. Um, Toyota has a car that does 400 miles without a charge. I'm going to buy a Tesla or a Toyota. Tell you what, I'm going to buy a Toyota. Thanks very much. There's nothing sexy about a Tesla in my head. So um, I think we've all forgotten that these companies do have competition. That's my point. It's a slight spike at Tesla. There's also an observation that Tesla still has competition. And, sure. and so that hasn't been cancelled just because everyone thinks six horses in the race are winning the race. So mm. caution there. rest of the world is not particularly expensive. It's not dirt cheap 09 style. But if we are assuming that normality does come in the next 12 months, let's hope it's not the Spanish flu and all those bad things, um, the trade clearly is the virus anti-trade, which is to say all the things that have totally been smacked, like, um, smacked out of existence are where you find the value, mm. IAG, mm. carnival even. I'll go really mad and say, you know, let's just say we break the back of this and go back to some degree of normality. People still like to go out. People still like to get on planes. People still like to travel. None of that has changed. 
Um, so the cheapest part of the market is the place to go and hide if you are compelled by a valuation argument. I don't know. Maybe I have a bias against uh, cruise stocks, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm slightly less bullish about kind I'm, of I'm, I'm with so. you. It's not my dynamic either. I've never been on one, but I yeah. also know that that's where people like to spend their money. If you're of a certain age, you like sure. to deliver to you. I'm almost there at 53. Like I'm getting there. Okay. But I, I, I do understand it. My point being that just, you can't just say that's not going to happen again. You of can't course. say people are not going to fly again. And we're discounting it. And even actually some of the more plain, indu- plain vanilla industrial stocks, even some of the things that make widgets into other things, I mean, really basic mm. stuff is being priced very, very lowly. So if we are going to have something, I mean, the worst thing for the fang stocks is, I mean, literally tomorrow morning, you know, we're in stage three phase trials for the Oxford vaccine and others. Phase one and two has been OK. They have the SARS blueprint. Let's just say it's OK. Let's just say you can actually inoculate the vulnerable. Uh, if you're under 60, you don't die of this. Mm. I mean, is the brutal truth. Um, and if you do, it's because you've got complications. And obviously, I'm very sorry for those people, but the bulk of the healthy population will be fine. Let's say we go there with this, then bang, you get a massive spike in these stocks. Mm. So holding them, at least as part of what you're doing, is a good idea at this point. It's a, it's a good risk return yeah. to think about the more value end of the market because sure. you've got the binary. They're already cheap. And if things even vaguely normalize, at the very least, you're going to get a nice bounce. Sustainable or not, another debate. The extremity here, dot-com equivalent, there's no question there's an extremity. Yeah. Valuation, there is. Facebook's on nine times price to sales. Yeah. You're pricing sales at nine times. Microsystems, some microsystems got to 10 times in 2000. What did it do? Well, it went down a lot. So you've got to be a bit cautious, of course. So I, I, I'm sure Tesla's not too far off, off that. And you, you obviously mentioned them. It, perhaps that's a good segue in a way because talking about both you know the inflation we're seeing in tech stocks but also another perhaps aside from the greatest exogenous shock to the global economy in living memory i suppose one of the other big themes in markets this year has been and it looks like it's going to be a central investing theme for the foreseeable future has been esg and and how investors you know we're told aren't thinking solely about returns or if they are they think about that that is perhaps the best bet is to invest ethically um, quote unquote. So this week, we, we had, uh, ethically is an interesting word. We can yes, come back to that. We can come back to that. Who, so this, this ethics that we talked about before. Yeah. Exactly. So, <laughs> so this, I mean, this week, Mark Carney joined Brookfield as an in, in, impact investor, saying investments that think beyond financial returns are one of the, the greatest commercial opportunities of our time, which I thought was quite an interesting comment. Do you see it as this is responsible investing? You know, again, a, a debatable term having its moment finally come or should we use the word more responsible investing? More responsible. Um, okay. I think what's actually happening is governments. I mean, the, the brutal truth is governments are leading it, um, as, as indeed only they can. Um, let, let's, let's get down to a couple of base cases. Um, number one, the listed sector in terms of carbon footprint, the economist's words, not mine, is at best 30%, which means 70% of what goes on is not in the hands of the listed sector. So everyone could stop crowing at fund managers and the involved financial community is the only way of solving this problem. Yes, they can try and change the behavior of Exxon, discuss whether that's the right or wrong thing to do. We can come on to that too. But the fact is, at first and foremost, it must be government-led. 70% of what we're discussing is not listed. That means there could be no influence born to bear except government interference in that process. And I'm, uh, you know, so let's get out in, the, out in the open. It's not just a comment on whether the listed piece, but where the listed piece is part of the process, as you have identified, there's, there's engagement and there's disinvestment. And I think um, for us, um, and the way we look at it, as, as what I do, I also sit in the IA Sectors Committee, so I have some vague insight into this. 
Um, it's positive impact. Mark Carney is discussing a positive impact. We'll come back to that in a second. Positive impact funds. There are negative screen funds. You take out what they don't like. Absolutely fine. And there's the general marketplace where there is a definite, absolute 100% push to take ESG, which existed in most cases, by the way, five years ago, because do not forget institutional mandates for a good period of time now, not the retail pooled funds that all, we, all of us um, buy, not the mutual funds we all buy, but actually the segregated mandates, your sovereign wealth funds, etc., have been specifying these mandates for a long time. So this isn't new investing. It's just the retail world is embracing what the institutional marketplace has been following for a while, which is we are concerned about E, S, and G. So the UN principles on this, the um, various ways in which you are now starting to see how you account for these things, the accounting version of the world of, 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 of ESG, are you diversified on your board, are you showing good governance, et cetera, et cetera. They, they have moved from, as I put it, page 30 of a retail presentation, retail investor presentation, towards the front of it. It was always there. It was embedded in processes to different degrees. Discuss that in a minute as well. But the fact of the matter is it was always front and center in most um, fund managers' minds. They don't want to be associated with companies that um, exploit a bad socially, pollute the rivers of the world, et cetera, et cetera, exploit labor. So I think there's always been an embedded part in, in most processes. I think what has happened is as the social conscience of the world has moved on, and I think the last five years has elevated that process, concerned about climate change primarily, but other issues as well. Fund management groups have engaged to varying degrees how far that's part of their normal investment process, as opposed to dedicating a resource to it and manufacturing funds that explicitly express um, a positive impact kind of um, approach or a negative screen kind of approach. So I think the trend was inevitable. I don't think it's trendy. I think it's a trend that continues. As, as you see it, where, where is this heading? Because, I mean, obviously, there are multiple frameworks. So we, we are talking in generalities here. And, and it's very useful that you you talked about, I suppose, both impact investing and the negative screening. But having, I mean, having formally covered the, the commodity sector, it seems like it's going to be quite hard for, for a number of companies, really. BP, obviously, making a big splash in their in their ambitions for for becoming a, a sort of yep. net carbon zero company and that's obviously to be to be welcomed but at a certain point there are there are companies surely which they're going to look better in the hands of private owners for on on any negative screening is di- is divestment simply just going to just going to reduce that 30 percent whatever equi- equivalent vice or uh, damage I, I, your, yeah. your screening for and, and really we're just left with a pool of virtuous but um perhaps on unmoored from the the real economy stocks well i think you have to accept that if a mining company is doing its best to limit its damage it's paying its workers properly looking after them trying to minimize um the extent to which its operations um cr- create a carbon footprint um that, 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 that positive engagement is what you would call um, the, the mainstream way of making capitalism work, because the fact is, if capitalism is a definition of the exploitation of land, labor and capital, of which it, by the way, is, and that hasn't changed, what we're actually doing with the ESG is trying to minimize the impact of that. You yeah. can't improve the fact you're taking copper out of the ground. You can't improve the fact that you're making concrete to build roads. So uh, the reality of the situation is you have to do them. You still have to build roads, but can you minimize the impact and damage to that? So, no, I think disinvestment is for certain people with a proclivity to say, I don't like tobacco. I don't like this. I don't like fossil fuel. I don't like that. Fine. Then you can have your chance to invest in those things. 
particularly expressed by positive impact funds, whereas you, you can take a very, a very, very holistic approach and say, actually, I'm just going to um, invest in those that are either involved in cleaning up the mess or explicitly are created to stop the mess in the first place by doing something different, which is also another way of investing in a positive impact way. The negative screen is a personal choice. Um, but you're right. So tobacco is a really good example. Um, uh, I'm a liberal. I can't help it. If someone wants to smoke, that's their choice. Um, it, it, it doesn't actually, um, it, if they're up to them. So for me, um, tobacco companies are what they are. People will t- take vices. And, and not everyone wants to live to 100 years in a nursing home. Some do, some don't. So you take your own view of ethics. I, I struggle with this because I think I can say McDonald's is just as bad because mm. it makes people a beast by eating McDonald's. So what ethics? This is why I try and take out ethics and ESG because I don't think they're the same thing. And I think that's where I have a real struggle with it. I, I acknowledge capitalism. I wouldn't be in financial markets if I didn't, but I'm all wholeheartedly in favor of finding the person who can turn the lights off quicker than someone else, can use less energy to get from A to B, sure. and can do all those good things to actually improve the impact we have on the environment. Um, so for me, disinvestment is a personal choice. If you don't want to be in that space, you ha- can now find funds that say no arms, uh, yeah, no pornography, no drink, no drugs, no um, uh, smoking. Absolutely fine. And there's a market catering for that and uh, all, 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 all grist to its mill. Um, I don't think that can become mainstream thinking, but I think it will become mainstream thinking if ESG morphs into moralizing about what is right and wrong then I think you'll see even greater disinvestment from the likes of tobacco companies. But I notice Campari doesn't come under the same pressure. I notice Heineken doesn't come mm. under the same pressure because guess what? Most people drink. So unsurprisingly, there's where the hypocrisy makes me laugh. We, we quite happily abuse the crap out of tobacco companies, but people still own drinks companies. So I think that's where I struggle with the ethical debate. What is not up for debate is the ESG in its purest form and that is about making capitalism less dangerous, is something that is being embraced. And I think the acceleration led by government, led by regulatory authorities, um, is going to continue. There's going to be this continuous fight about what is, and you've covered commodities, you understand that, what is truly green. Unfortunate that some of the biggest investors in green technology happen to be the biggest energy companies in the world today. So there's the issue. Do you encourage Shell to move further along? They're the ones with the wallets to actually make it happen. Do you let carbon footprint carry on for a while while they invest in the things that are more sustainable? Um, those are really difficult decisions mm. to take and probably above your or my pay grade. Um, uh, we both probably have a view. Personally, I'm not in favor of disinvestment en masse because mm. I think you don't help the situation there. That just pushes it onto the government. It would be better if as a mass we were all saying, Let's just exploit a little less. Let's find better ways of exploiting. Let's be more efficient. Let's get that 200 miles to the gallon engine rather than seeking out the 30 mile an hour engine, gallon engine. If we could do that, think how much less petrol Mm. we could use. Those are the sensible things we should be doing, accepting that carbon's still going to be here for the next 20 years and and not just running away and sending us tomorrow morning's electric cars plugged into a grid that can't cope anyway. So we've also got to think longer term about how you build the infrastructure out to decarbonize. Those are the exciting things, which I think Carney's talking about. It's yeah. the ecosystem in aggregate to improve the way we stop the carbon. So air pollution, water pollution, all those good things, they're all virtuous. My problem with Carney's argument, I'm not sure how it fits into daily dealing mutual funds. I think the longer term perspectives, when you're doing the ecosystem piece, investing in Zambia and Zimbabwe and all the things that involve long term development um, programs, I think they sit with NGOs, government, and to some extent, maybe pension funds. I'm, I'm not sure it's readily able to be exploited um, by y- your mainstream investing public, bar some of the picks and shovels providers who are obviously aiding that process. But mm-hmm. I think it's a little more difficult 
uh, to embrace that as a, as, a, as a standard investor. I think a lot of them have a long-term payoff and they need, therefore, somewhere between government and pension, long-term pension fund support. To tack on the theme of ESG here and talking about um, how it might take shape in, in the future in, in portfolios. Um, yep. HSBC's asset management arm this week said that they want to sort of reframe the E in ESG, I suppose, to think more than just climate change, which in some ways it's become synonymous with. And you, you, as you said there, the, the environmental scope of ESG obviously includes yeah. myriad other things. Um, yeah. And they're, they're talking about wanting a new natural cap- capital to be a new asset class. And, you know, forgive me for asking, because I know you're, it's not you who's putting this forward as, a, as an idea. But I, I suppose the idea of preserving forestry or protecting natural assets could be a cornerstone um, feature of portfolios alongside you know, long-term uh, hard assets like infrastructure. Do you have any thoughts on, on that sort no, of what seems to be emergent capital. thinking? Again, I, I think the natural capital piece, which is at the end of the day, the whole ecosystem. So we all look at the impact of carbon footprint. But, you know, you build the new factory, you build the new dam, whatever it is, what is the impact on the overall environment? Um, that, it's interesting that Carney thinks that is a, and it was Mark Carney, you know, he's an advocate for that and obviously um, um, is, is pushing that agenda. Again, I go back to my main point. I'm not entirely clear, and I openly admit that, as to how that would be easily um, a, a tool for what I would say your classic mutual fund, bar some of the corporate beneficiaries of, 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 of that process. Because basically, it's just a green audit of everything, as distinct from the idea that in isolation, you build X and don't take account of the environmental impact around you of, of, of everything else. So. Yeah. It, it, it is interesting, but I go back to my point. I think that's NGO government slash pension fund stuff. I think there's a very long-term payoff. I'm not entirely clear how you can exploit that um, in a fund at this point. And hands up, it's relatively new thinking. Um, there's no reason why I should be a thought leader on it. I, I can see some of the problems with it in relation to um, the kind of typical you could buy a listed infrastructure fund, you know, but they're listed equities. So you are buying you are buying. You know, toll roads, you are buying infrastructure, which is distinctly different from what I would call holistic whole investing. Um, and it's a relatively new field. We're discussing here as ESG, making existing structures um, less exploitative, more inclusive. That's a very different debate from saying, do we think 360? And I go back to my point. I think that's something to develop um, in the medium term. It will be interesting to see how HSBC manufactures that into a product. Um, that that in, in aggregate people can invest in because to me it sounds like medium term long term investment horizons. Yeah. It sounds like closed cap closed ended funds. It doesn't sound to me like daily dealing equity slash bond funds. Yeah, but I think it's it's those structures. Many people want those. Supposed to just end with reining it in from the very long term speculative to, to I suppose near term considerations. We're looking to the the end of this year. We've got. Big vaccine hopes. We've also got a U.S. election. What what are you? What what are the big areas to watch for uh, investors <laughs> yeah. over the of the coming? I don't, I'm not asking you to pick sides or anything, Peter. It's um, it's, uh, uh, it's entirely you, as you, you want. You can't pick sides. Well, it's the same thing. The the election is a rerun of four years ago. So yeah. I think what's interesting is everyone who finds Trump um, offensive because of the way he behaves is very keen that he is removed. Everyone who still supported him is still there, and it's a secret bunch of. Trumpet voters who are uh, Trump voters who are clearly Republicans who will vote again for him um, because it's in their own interest. It's very much a redux of Boris and, um, and you know Johnson and Corbyn. So um, I think you can frame it from a UK investor in those terms. 
but um, whatever comes, um, I think there's going to be some dispute over it. One thing I'm very clear on in my head is that there's going to be some troubles. Um, yeah. It's not entirely clear that either side wishes to back down from the belief that they have the divine right to run the country, um, Democrat or Republican. And it's going to be an interesting election. Whichever side of the fence you fall on, probably the reality of the situation is all parties in the world have a central bankers um, that are behaving in the way they're behaving, uh, which is basically to direct capital. So you have a very different framework. Whoever is in charge... Um, you have a situation where um, investors' uh, fortunes are being decided by um, higher authorities than our good selves. Uh, liquidity is being provided to goose the system. And I think that will carry on um, between now and that election. The election itself, what does it represent? One represents a different way of um, thinking about the world. So although the impact looks like it's aggressive, if Biden comes in, it's not a sudden uh, sort of lurch to the left. Um, he's actually a very mainstream Democrat. And Kalmar Harris is actually not that different. Look at her voting record and look mm. at the things. She, she's no radical either. And she will blow with what is required in the wind here, I suspect, to move towards the centre to hopefully capture that vote that's slightly disenchanted with Trump. And there clearly is an element of that, which is their chance to win. But I don't think Biden represents a sort of socialist leftist nirvana. And Trump represents um, continuation, which is um, America first, um, business first, um, support the markets, as far as they practically can, and spend, spend, spend. Yeah. Both sides are in spend, spend, spend mode. So actually, the truth is, it doesn't matter which one's in. They're both going to spend money that they don't have. They're both going to have interest rates that are super low, and they're both going to keep putting liquidity in the system. Yeah, so I mean, and even if we get to the position which, you know, I, I suppose some of Trump's uh, comments in the last few weeks have perhaps pointed at this, if we get to a stage where the result is contested for whatever reason, do you think that that they're just, it's a nightmare, but is it a nightmare for markets? Because is the, is liquidity just continue to be underwritten? um, Well, that's the point. Liquidity carries on, but uh, an absolute vacuum in in political terms. And you have to worry about the fact that, um, for instance, Trump will simply not accept a result that does not result in him winning. You have to equally accept that if the left wing do not get left, left, uh, and the more liberal elements do not get Biden elected, they will equally go on rampages because there's no reason to believe they won't. It's going to be difficult. Whoever wins, it's going to be a challenge. I'm merely pointing out that actually in the real politic of what happens to the economy, both sides of the House and both parties wish to continue to support the recovery of America from the COVID crisis. Now, I would argue after an 11-year expansion, you're slightly pushing on a string. If this was year four of an expansion, if this is 2012, not 2020, you have a different armory but yeah. argument. But we are very indebted globally. U.S. corporate is more indebted than it's ever been as a percentage of GDP. The government has borrowed more than it's ever borrowed before in the United States of America. And individuals still remain personally, individually very indebted. There's a big debt bubble out there. There's a big debt pile out there, not bubble, debt pile out there. Um, one way or another, that will be supported by whoever part, whoever is in power um, at this point. So, no, I, I agree with you. The most difficult thing is going to be a contested election. And I think contested it will be. So a difficult Q4 um, in the political sense is, is you can you know, bet on that. So, again, back to my point, for this quarter, please stay diversified. Do not run away from sovereign bonds because the yield is very uninteresting. Do not sell your inflation-linked bonds. Who knows? Do not get rid of any gold if you have it. Hold on to your equities for liquidity. And just remember that corporate America is underwritten by the central banks of the world, or the world corporate um, corporate paper is underwritten mostly by central banks of the world. So there's a good reason to own everything, but there's definitely a reason not just to own one of them. Good stuff. And perhaps next time uh, we speak, we can we can tackle that debt bubble conundrum um, and, and work out uh, how the world emerges from that. Oh, that's um, easy. I can t- answer that easy now. Stuff. That's easy. Okay. Just, 
it's easy. You just do Corona bonds. They're going to do war bonds. In the end, this will simply be parceled up as a 50-year war bond. It's a moment in time. It's similar to fighting a war. I don't know why anyone thinks it isn't. You simply wrap up Corona bonds. You make them, send them out 50 years. You give a fairly nominal yield to it. And that's exactly what they will end up doing. I have absolutely no doubt that's where we'll end up. All this idea of tax rises and everything else. It's an extreme event met with extreme force, and I think eventually there will be good thinkers who think that's actually what you end up doing. And let's call them corona bonds because that's what they are. Yeah. Um, and I think people are obsessing a little bit too much about what the um, scale of the debt is. This is unprecedented. You have the capacity to do it. Let's just get on and do it. And uh, that, so that would be my answer. I think that's what the governments will end up doing because I don't think they're going to have a choice. There you go. Good stuff. There you go. That was my five seconds on that one. Brilliant. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> good stuff. We're lovely all to right. talk to you and uh, all the best in the months ahead. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.